some people are excited. Did MSU win or something? No. I try. All right. If you will open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Matthew 9, 27. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, But our prayer for this month is, Lord, make us clean. And we got this prayer from Matthew chapter 8, when there is a leper who cries out to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And it's interesting because he says clean instead of heal. And it was that he was asking for more than just a physical healing. He definitely wanted that too. But in Jewish society, cleanliness meant wholeness, that you um, were at one with God and with his people, that you were just emotionally, physically, relationally whole. And so that's what we pray for when we pray, Lord, make us clean. I know many of you are longing for that. I think um, our land is longing for that. You know, as we grieve with the families from MSU, um, I think there's just this growing desire that, man, we need to be made clean. There needs to be this release of all of this anxiety and frustration and anger, everything that divides us, the stress. We need to be washed and made new. And so I've asked you to pray that every day. I'm praying it every day. Just one simple sentence. Lord, make us clean for you, your family, for our church family, and and for our world. Because we really all need it. So as we're praying, Lord, make us clean, we've been studying the miracles of Jesus recorded in Matthew. And now we are at Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. It says this. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. I'm just going to pause right there. What does son of David mean? This was actually a really important thing that they were saying when they were calling Jesus the son of David. You see, God, through the prophets, had promised the the people of Israel that he would send them a savior to rescue them. And the savior would be a descendant of King David. And so through the generations, they kept waiting for the savior. And they came up with a few different names to refer to the savior by. The most popular was the anointed one, like God's anointed savior. And that's where we get um, the word Messiah. It's from the Hebrew word for anointed one. Christ is from the Greek word for anointed one, all right? So those are those common names you see in the Bible for Jesus. Um, But the other one was son of David, because he was supposed to be from the line of of David. And um, let's see, Matthew, he actually opens his book with a statement. Matthew is writing to the Jewish people to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And he starts his book By saying, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then what does he do right after that? Yeah, the son of Abraham. And he lists this genealogy proving that Jesus was a descendant of David. And then Matthew, for the rest of his book, he just starts referring to Old Testament prophecies about this Messiah and showing how Jesus fulfills them. I mean, that's 
the book of Matthew in a nutshell right there. Uh, one of the prophecies is from Isaiah 35. I want to show you this one. Uh, Isaiah 35 verse 4 says this. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And what will happen when he comes? Next verse. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Because of this prophecy, the Pharisees taught that the way we will recognize the Messiah is he will heal the blind, heal the deaf, heal the lame, the crippled, and the mute. Those were, pro- those were miracles that had never been done in Israel's history. A lot of other miracles had. There were several prophets who did miracles um, that healed people of leprosy. That happened a few different times. Um, even raising the dead had happened before. Casting out demons had happened before. But those four miracles had never been done in Israel's history. And so the Pharisees taught the people, look, when these things happen, that's the Messiah. All right? And so Matthew, he's writing to the Jewish people to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And earlier, he starts recording how Jesus starts to heal people. He heals people of sickness, of fever. He casts out demons. But in chapter 9, where we are today, things really heat up. Because as we read last week, the first verse of chapter 9, there's some friends. They're carrying their friend who is paralyzed, who's lame, right? And they can't get close to Jesus because he's surrounded by all these Pharisees who are trying to figure out if he's a true or false prophet. So they rip through a hole in the roof. And they lower a paralyzed man down right in front of Jesus. And all the Pharisees are like, hmm. And Jesus knows how strategic of a moment this is too. Because healing a lame person is what? It's a sign of the Messiah. And so Jesus, he looks at the person and says, your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees are like, that's blasphemy. Only God can do that. Right? And so Jesus says, well, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And then he says, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And all the Pharisees are like, that's the sign we've been looking for. And they fall down and they start worshiping Jesus, right? No. No, they don't. And now it's just later in the same chapter. Okay? So not long after this. And there are two blind men who are calling after Jesus. They have heard about this miracle that was done publicly. That Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. He healed a lame person. And they are the first people to recognize that he is the Messiah. Outside of Jesus' birth story, the first people to recognize who he is are two blind people. Even before Peter's confession, 
before his disciples, two blind people were the first to have faith. And you think Jesus would be, like, ecstatic about this and thrilled someone has finally recognized him. But he actually kind of ignores them in the beginning until they get inside. Let's read this. I'll start in verse 27 again. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that nobody knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. Why, why did God, why did Jesus wait until they were inside? And why did he tell them not to tell anybody about it? Like, that's even possible when you've been blind your whole life and now you see, like, nobody's going to notice that. (laughs) Um, Why did he do that? I think there's um, three reasons that I can think of. The first is that Jesus is tired. Jesus is God who has limited himself to a human body. And... The stories talk about how everywhere he went, crowds were pressing in on him. And the more news spread about him healing, the more people would come and press in on him. And I think he was getting exhausted. And um, this week, if you follow along um, with a Bible reading for Lent, we still have cards up here um, at the tables. But you'll read about how Jesus made sure to find times of rest for himself and his disciples. But I think that was part of it. I, and I think that's why he waited till they got inside. I think um, Jesus also waited until they were inside and told them to tell no one because he never wanted to be a celebrity. Jesus was incredibly humble. He always said he'd come and he'd to do the will of his father, and he wanted his father to get the glory. It was not about him and making himself known. And we'll see in a minute how Jesus actually takes a step back and he sends his disciples and lets them have the limelight for a while. Because his his priority is not to become a celebrity. His priority is for more and more people to be reconciled to God. And so he is not looking to lift up himself, but trying to lift up others to do that as well. Third, um, I think Jesus waited until they were inside and told them to tell no one because he realized this was getting more and more dangerous, what he was doing. The more he acted like God doing these messianic miracles, the more he claimed to be God, healing and forgiving sins. The more of a threat he became to the religiously powerful. 
You see, God is not a threat to the lowly. God is not a threat to those who have been beat down by life. He's a rescuer. He's a savior. But it's the people who are secure, who think they've got a good grip on life, who are in control, that's the kind of people God is a threat to. And especially to those whose religious expertise makes them influential. God is a threat to. Because if God is present, why do you need a religious teacher or priest? You don't. And Jesus knew the quicker the word spread that he was God, the quicker the religious leaders would move to kill him. And he was willing to die, but he had a timeline of things he needed to accomplish first. And he was trying to manage that timeline. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. While the blind, no longer blind men, were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. What is healing a mute person? It's a sign of the Messiah. Yeah. The man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. I want to contrast the response of the three different groups to Jesus' messianic miracles. There were the blind men, the crowd, and the Pharisees. The blind men were quick to have faith, weren't they? They were quick to recognize and, and believe the testimony of God's word, that God's word prophesied this, Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies, therefore, he's God's savior. Faith came easily to them. The crowds, they also knew the prophecies, right? And the scriptures, they knew nothing like this has been done before. And they were amazed, but they wondered. They were like considering, right? They were withholding their judgment, like, oh, could this be? They didn't know. The Pharisees, the ones who dedicated their lives to studying God's word, the Old Testament portion of your Bible, the ones who had been teaching others, these are the messianic miracles we need to look for. What was their response? He's a devil. That's what, literally. I think one of the most sobering things about this story is that it demonstrates, demonstrates a few things. One, it demonstrates that sight is a hindrance to faith. Sight can be a hindrance to believing in a new work of God because we've never seen God work that way before. Why were the blind men the first to believe in Jesus? Probably because they couldn't see him. They couldn't see how unimpressive this carpenter from the backwoods village of Nazareth was. 
Isaiah had even prophesied that he would be very unoppressive. Look at this verse from Isaiah chapter 53. It said, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was not an attractive person. In many cases, he probably seemed below average. He did not look like a charismatic, you know, national leader. I think this story, it speaks to the human tendency to have faith in the powerful, the beautiful, the charismatic. But God over and over says that he works through the lowly and the humble and the meek. God doesn't manifest himself in the big and flashy, but in the lowly. The Apostle Paul got this. Look at the, what he, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, but he, meaning God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. God's power is manifest in what the world considers weakness. Another sobering thing about this story Um, is that it was the most religiously educated and most religiously influential people um, who are most likely to reject Jesus. And we see that play out not only in this story, but over and over through the Gospels, even in the Old Testament with the prophets. It was the religious elite who were most likely to reject a new work of the Lord. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like leaders of other religions. The Pharisees, they were the leaders of God's people. They studied the same scriptures that you and I believe in. And yet they were the most likely to reject Jesus. Why is this? God had never done it that way before. Right? They knew God's history. And also, this this new work of God, it upset their apple cart. Okay? As teachers of God's law, they controlled the knowledge of God. They controlled which scriptures got taught on. They, They defined, this is what a godly person lives like, and this is what an ungodly person lives like. And astonishingly, the descriptions of what a godly person looks like always looked like who? Them. And it was the way that they liked to live. And they could back it up with scripture. But there were all these other scriptures over here that they would ignore. And Jesus comes along and he starts teaching on these scriptures. And he starts healing and forgiving and accepting people that they discarded.
And he challenges their rules for how a godly person lives. And we see this principle in the Old and New Testament that it's the religious leaders of God's own people who are most likely to reject a new work of the Lord. And that is very humbling for me. And I try to keep that always in front of me. Because it means, statistically speaking, of all of us in this room, I am most likely to miss it. Why? Well, I was raised a pastor's kid. I grew up in the church. I have three Bible and theology degrees. Growing up, it was so easy for me to be filled with religious pride. I barely knew what life was like outside the church. And I think that's why God called me to a 10-year church planning adventure where there was no church and I had to live among the, the meek and the lowly and the poor. And I had to have my heart broken for them like God's heart is broken for them. And I also had to feel God's creative heart for doing new things because we serve a creative God. But I think for all of us who have been Christians a long time, we have to be sobered and humbled by this. Because statistically speaking, we are the most likely to become like the Pharisees and resist the new work that the Lord is trying to do. This month we've been praying, Lord, make us clean. And while we've been praying that God has been doing an amazing work in Wilmore, Kentucky, at Asbury University. I don't know if you've heard about this. There's all kinds of things on social media about it. Um, Like many Christian universities, uh, Asbury has weekly chapel services. And so 10 days ago, at their 10 a.m. Wednesday chapel service, just a normal service. At the end of it, one courageous young man was just moved and he got up and he confessed his sin publicly. Can you imagine the shockwaves that caused? Can you imagine the shockwaves it would cause if someone did that here? Another person began crying and got up and confessed their sin. And then another person started crying and got up and confessed their sin. And that chapel service didn't end. Some left and went to classes and then came back. Some just stayed. Others started coming. And it's been going on for 10 days now. For 10 days, and people are coming from all over. Now the people are starting to come from other countries to Wilmore, Kentucky. And all the reports are the same about how calm and peaceful it is. It's just people praising God, praying and repenting of their sins. That's it. There is no great emotionalism. Some of the stuff, um, like shrieking and hysterical laughter and fainting and, you know, shaking and some of that kind of stuff that frankly is very indicative of pagan worship, but sometimes gets called Christian revival. There's none of that going on. It's just people praising God and confessing their sins. 
and repenting. And there's so many stories, stories of healing. Not a physical healing, but healing um, from depression, from anxiety. A lot of people talk about how they've been so burdened and they've been so anxious and they go there and it's like the peace of God just overtakes them and there's it's gone. And there's all kinds of stories of reconciled relationships happening. And how do um, the Christian elite respond to this? Well, there's been mixed, mixed reactions. Some are very happy. Some are like, hmm, this is interesting. And some are condemning it. I saw one story, um, very skeptical that this could be a work of God because Asbury teaches that, you know, they believe in the Bible, they teach the Bible, they believe God created the world, but they think that the seven days of creation may not have been seven 24-hour literal days. So how, why would God send his spirit to such heretics, you know? Um, criticism for the kind of worship music that's being played. It doesn't come from the, what they think is good worship music, you know? Uh, criticism because Asbury celebrated Black History Month, so they might be woke. And, you know, why would God spend his spirit to a bunch of woke people? And there's all these Christian leaders and influencers and experts who are just kind of standing back, judging, trying to see. I had one leader tell me, I'm dusting for God's fingerprints. To see if this is a work of the Lord. And meanwhile, young people are falling on their knees and confessing sin and praising God. We have to repent of the hardness of our hearts and of our unwillingness to let God do a new work that moves us out of our comfort zone. First Chronicles 7.14 says this. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. We think the solution to healing our land is to change the people out there. To change what they believe, how they think, to beat them in elections. And God says, no, it's not them. It starts with the people here. It starts with the people who call themselves by my name. They're the ones who have to humble themselves and repent. And that's exactly what's happening at Asbury. And when we humble ourselves and repent, then God promises to forgive and heal. For those of us who are Christian leaders, whether, I mean, there's nationally known Christian leaders, but we have leaders in every local church, too. You know, I think um, we often believe, rightly so, that God elevates us to positions of Christian leadership and influence. And because we recognize that God has put us in that position, 
there's a tendency to think that anything that threatens our position of Christian leadership is from the enemy. And that's what the Pharisees believed. And sometimes we miss that it might be God taking away our God-given influence because he's raising up a new generation to do a new work. Look what happens in our scripture. The Pharisees, they say it's by the prince of demons, it's by the enemy that he drives out demons, right? Verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And what's the very next thing he does? Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. See, right after the religious elite reject Jesus and the new work he's doing, he rises up the next group. Next group of unruly disciples. These guys had issues. (laughs) They were not professionally trained. (laughs) Right? But that's who he sent out. And he makes the ministry of the Pharisees obsolete. I don't, I don't want my sight to hinder my faith. I don't want my sight of everything God hasn't done in the past to hinder my faith of what he is doing now and will do in the future. And I don't want any pride or any insecurity that I have to hold on to my status as a Christian leader to cause me to block people that God is raising up now. I think of the words of John the Baptist when he spoke of Jesus and he said, He, Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. And that's an attitude for all of us to adopt. For those of you who, like me, have been a Christian a long time, we have to guard against what Jesus called the yeast of the Pharisees. He told his disciples to do that. Guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. We have to be humbled. That that we're most likely to become like them. And we have to keep a humble and repentant heart before the Lord. And for those of you who do not consider yourself a Christian leader, and you know you do not have your act together spiritually, be encouraged. Because neither did the disciples that Jesus sent out. Remember, God's power is made perfect in your weakness. And all the things that you think 
make you unable and discredit you. That's where his power is manifest. Um, Just as Jesus, he commissioned and he sent out these 12 disciples, um, we're going to do a little commissioning today. Some of you have groups that you're going to lead for Lent, Bible reading groups, and so I want you to come and just stand here in the front, and I'm going to pray over you. I know there's just a handful of you, so don't be shy. The worship team can come up now as well, but we're just going to pray over you. And... um, and then the worship team is going to lead us in song. Um, there's several ways for you to respond. As always, the prayer bowls are open. You can write a prayer and bring it forward. You can, um, there's more Lent Bible reading cards. If you want one of these, you can come up and grab one. I'll be back in the back again to anoint anyone with oil who wants to be prayed over. Um, or if you have sin you want to confess and just be reassured that God has forgiven you, um, you can meet me back there and, and we'll do that together. So, all right. But you love us and want to move in us and through us. And so I thank you for these who have gathered here, who you have raised up just to read your word with others. I thank you for their courage in asking others to join them. And God, I pray you give them favor. I pray you pave the road because there's going to be a lot of things like, oh, it gets hectic at work or the time doesn't work or, you know, all of these little things where I'm not feeling good will creep up. And so, God, I just pray that you pave the way to make the space and the time available for them to read your word with those who you bring to them, Lord. And I pray for more to join, too. I pray for those who will see and overhear the reading going on. And even if they're not sitting, participating, it's going to be a witness to them. And I thank you for the gift of your word that it is alive and active. And we just pray that your spirit will carry it through these people, Lord, into homes and workplaces. And you will do what only you can do. And God, I pray for all of us that you will give us courage to see and be a part of the new work that you are doing. Help us to realize it, Lord, and want to be a part. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.